Welcome to the Mercy Commons podcast. Thank you for joining us today. We trust that the Word of God encourages you and that the Holy Spirit empowers you. Uh, I do also um, want to say congratulations to the Padres. Uh, God has taught me many lessons through this. Uh, One of them being the first shall be last and the last being the Padres, shall be first. Um, but honestly, I was thinking about this the other day because uh, uh, Gabby and I were saying, hey, we should have a watch party for the Dodgers. Um, and we planned it for the next series because we were so confident uh, that we would, of course, beat the Padres. But I actually thought about that as, as I woke up this morning and knew I would have to face Jason. Um, <laughs> I thought about how often we do that and just think through the place that we're at. Um, And we're here this morning, and we have things to do after this. We have things to do on Monday. Um, We maybe are planning to do certain things that we're excited about. But right now we're here, um, and God wants to do something. So let me pray. Father, thank you for your kindness. Thank you for the way you've already ministered uh, to so many of your sons and daughters this morning. Thank you that when we gather as a community, you use um, us uh, to be privileged enough to be conduits of your grace to our brothers and sisters. I want to thank you for the power of your word. I want to thank you that we submit to it because it is yours. And I pray, Father God, that we would be open, that we would be uh, ready for change. I want to pray that you would anoint my lips and my mind. Um, to be faithful to your word and to bring glory to you, Jesus. Amen. Amen. So last week we ended, we're in our series of ju- in, in the book of Judges. Uh, we are now in chapter 6. Last week we ended with Deborah, Barak, and Yael. And uh, those of you that weren't here, just a, a quick recap. What happened is uh, Deborah, who was a prophetess and a judge, called Barak to... Um, to fight against the enemies, and he did in a sense, um, but because he wanted Deborah to come with him and he was acting out of a sense of feeble faith, uh, Deborah said that honor would come through a woman, and he thought it would be Deborah, but it ended up being Yael who, um, who took a tent peg uh, when the captain of the army, uh, and after she had hidden this guy, proceeded to bash his head in with a ten peg and a hammer. And for that, the Bible honors her um, in terms of that. Not for that action, but for the action of actually believing uh, that God can use every single one of us. And today we look at the story of Gideon. Again, the cycle of Judges um, is a cycle that we are kind of getting a little tired of, even though we are here in week four. Uh, What happens is the people get oppressed, they cry out to God, God rescues them, um, and they have a time of peace. Then they look towards the idols and the gods of the people that are around them. Uh, They sin, and they get oppressed, and the cycle continues on and on. We're now 40 years later, and Israel has forgotten God, and it is the Midianites this time that have taken their land. But this is particularly bad for the Israelites, because the Israelites are now hiding in caves, Um, They have no pastures, they have no flocks, they are literally hiding in caves in the mountains because the Midianites have taken 
all of their pastures. They have no cities. It is the exact opposite of what was promised to Joshua as they entered the promised land. And so we pick up Judges 6, verses 11 to 16. Then the Lord's messenger came and sat under the oak tree at Oprah that belonged to Joash the Abzirite. His son Gideon was threshing wheat in a winepress to hide it from the Midianites. The Lord's messenger appeared to him and said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. But Gideon replied to him, With all due respect, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all his amazing works that our ancestors recounted to us, saying, Didn't the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and allowed Midian to overpower us. And the Lord turned to him and said, You have strength. So go and rescue Israel from the power of Midian. Am I not personally sending you? But again, Gideon said to him, With all due respect, my Lord, how can I rescue Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I'm the youngest in my household. The Lord replied, Because I'm with you, you'll defeat the Midianites as if they were just one person. This morning we're going to look at the idea of the fact that God finds Gideon, God reminds Gideon who he is, and then God engages Gideon in the same way that God finds us, reminds us who we are, as he's already done this morning, um, and, and engages us in what you will see Gideon was engaged in. The first thing is that God actually seeks us out. Um, when the angel goes to Gideon and says, um, and, and appears to him and says, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Some people are, are wondering, like, is, is that sarcastic? You know, is he being sarcastic to him? It's like, hey, the Padres are a great baseball team, you know? Are we being sarcastic, or do we really kind of believe that? I, I remember when uh, I was working my, my second job, and it was a year, and I received my check, and I got an increase because it was a year I went into my boss's office, and I said to him, hey, I just wanted to thank you for my really generous increase. And he's like, are you being sarcastic? And I'm like, no, no, I'm, I'm really grateful for my, my increase. And um, that started a, an interesting relationship with me and my boss, or it continued an interesting relationship, because in that moment, he really thought I was being sarcastic. He really thought that I expected more, and my gratitude was sarcasm. I don't believe the angel is being sarcastic here when he says to Gideon, you are a mighty warrior. Well, what is Gideon doing? Is he planning to start a rebellion? No, Gideon is just surviving. What are you doing threshing wheat in a wine press? Let me show you what a wine press looks like. That's a wine press that's probably about 1,500 years before Christ. This is another wine press that is much, much later than that. It's basically a hole in the ground, okay? And, and what you do is you gather around that and you put the grapes in there and you tread them out. That's what a, a wine press is. Now, the reason why this is significant, why it's significant that Gideon was hiding in the wine press is because wine presses in the times of Israel were places of great partying and rejoicing. Um, it was when the harvest um, had been fulfilled, they would gather all the grapes, and they would be partying, they would be rejoicing, they'd be singing and dancing as people were treading the wine. It was a time of joy, it was a time of abundance, and it was a time of hope. Now here he is, 
in a time of fear and shame and lack. Now, when you thresh wheat, what you do is you grab all the wheat and you're in a very, very open space. And you grab the wheat with a winnowing fork and you throw it up into the air and the chaff gets blown away and the wheat falls down to the ground. Now, this is the thing that should be done in a very open and spacious place. And just like the wine press, the threshing floor was also a place of parting. Why? Because they were rejoicing in the harvest they were getting. But here we find Gideon in the darkness in a very cramped and restrictive place. Like, I'm looking at that and I'm like, how are you threshing wheat in that? Like, what are, what are you doing? We also know that it's, it's probably at night, he's hiding from the Midianites. And one of the things that we look at when we, we look at Gideon, we're like, ah, oh, I don't really understand this guy. I think a lot of us, though, are like Gideon. I think a lot of us are dutiful, but we are disillusioned and we feel disqualified. And some of you here have made decisions much like Gideon. You're not giving up. That things for you right now are dark and restrictive and unsatisfying. Maybe it's in the context of your marriage. Maybe it's in the context of your parenting or, or your job. Maybe it's even in the context of your faith. And you're in this dark and restrictive place. And I feel like God is saying to you the same thing that he said to Gideon. I feel like God wants to commend you and say, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Because there's one thing that Gideon continues to do in this sense, is he's not given up. He's saying, I'm going to find a way to make sure that I survive, that I provide for my family. I'm going to find a way. God meets us in a space when we haven't given up, when our world is smaller, where we're not dreaming, we're just surviving, and when we're plagued with the kinds of questions that Gideon is asking. Why has all this happened to us? Have you ever asked that question? Why is this happening to me? Where are the amazing works that the Lord has done? And why has He abandoned us? Those are three important questions. Like Gideon, we feel abandoned, we feel angry, and we feel tired. Now, I'm not sure whether Gideon understood who he was talking to. Um, because I don't know that he would have been that honest if he had understood who he was talking to. Because later on in the narrative, he has this little test for the angel where he makes the angel cook some food, you know. And suddenly he realizes that it actually is an angel of God. And then he falls on his, uh, he falls on his face and the angel says, don't worry, you will not die. So there was this expectation that when you met with an angel, you would die. We see it throughout the Old Testament. And I think part of the kindness in all of this to Gideon is that there was a sense in which Gideon didn't really realize who he was talking to, and so he was honest on a very raw level. You know, the opposite is true of us. The thing is, is because we know who we're talking to, we can be honest on a really raw level. Because we know that it is not us that hold on to our salvation. Because we know that it isn't our faith that remains, uh, that helps us be anchored to God. We know that we can ask these questions and we will not be fearing death. Because we know in a small, dark, and restrictive place, we can ask these questions and God will do a number of things. And the first thing he does is he reminds us of who we are. You have strength. So go now and rescue Israel from the power of Midian. 
Am I not personally sending you? What amazes me in all of this is he doesn't just say to Gideon, you have strength, get up, and what you're able to do is you're able to feed your whole family. He's like, no, we're going to go beyond that. We're not just going to take you out of this restrictive little hole, but we're going to make you someone who by your actions can see the whole nation of Israel freed. But Gideon said to him, with all due respect, my Lord, how can I rescue Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I'm the youngest in my household. The Lord replied, because I'm with you, you'll defeat the Midianites as if you were just one person. He doesn't say, no, 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 Gideon, you're not as weak as you think you are. No, no, Gideon, uh, Manasseh's actually not the weakest tribe in all of this. No, no, we'll, we'll figure something out. He says, the reason you are able to do this is because I am with you. Remember we spoke a couple weeks ago that God has given us everything that pertains to life and godliness? That in Corinthians, Paul tells the Corinthian church that he has chosen the ignoble things and the unwise things to shame the wise of this world. God takes great pleasure in using us as Gideons that feel in a dark place and restrictive to be able to bring freedom to an entire nation. We forget who we are and we forget who God is. In week two, I spoke a lot about that. But when we're in our wine press in a dark and restrictive place, that's what happens. The Lord has to remind him, I am the God who brought you out of the bondage of Egypt. And we need reminding of who we are. We need reminding of who we are because sometimes our circumstances have forced us into this wine press. Sometimes our own decisions have forced us into this wine press and we've forgotten. I mean, even now in the context of our life groups, a little ad for life groups, we're going through identities, right? We are being reminded of who we are. It's important because we function out of our identities. We don't function in order to receive our identities. And this week in Life Group, we began as a series of sentence saying, sentences saying, because I already am, I am able to. So for example, because I already, um, because I already have the spirit of love, of self-discipline and of power, I am able to resist the temptations in the world. And you'll say to me, but Nick, you don't know me. You, you don't know who I am. You don't know the kind of failings that I have. I do know this. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead is resident in you. I know that this side of eternity, you will not reach perfection, but you will, you will experience progress. I remember Joey, during COVID, brought this um, quote to my attention. It's from John Newton. Now, what's important about this is John Newton wrote the hymn Amazing Grace. What you may not know about John Newton is that he was actually involved in the slave trade. And so he came to a place of faith recognizing the darkness of what he had done, and he wrote Amazing Grace, which is why this quote is so powerful when you read it. He says, I'm not what I ought to be, but I'm, and I'm not what I want to be. I'm not what I hope to be in another world, but still I am not what I once used to be. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. I am not what I once used to be, and by the grace of God, I am what I am. God takes great joy in seeing us move from a place of 
point A to point B to point C, because he knows that until that day comes, we will never be perfected. But we should always be desiring the same thing that Paul desired for Timothy, may your progress be known to many. And so God reminds us of who we are. We may not be what we want to be, but I know I'm not what I used to be. And then God engages us. The thing about the way we want God to do things is we want God to do things to us or we want God to do things for us. We're not that keen for God to do things through us. We'd rather, like, it's the idea of, like, losing weight with, like, plastic surgery. I'd rather have something done to me than actually actively be involved in the process of doing something. It's just a whole lot easier that way. Well, the challenge is that biblically, God works through us more than He works to us in those moments. And so what He does is something pretty dramatic. He engages Gideon to tear down some family altars. In Judges 6, verses 25 to 27, he says to him, That night the Lord said to him, Take your father's bull and a second bull seven years old. Break down your father's altar to Baal and cut down the Asherah pole that is beside it. Build an altar to the Lord your God in the proper way on top of this high ground. And then take the second bull and offer it as an entirely burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah pole that you cut down. So Gideon took ten of his servants and did just as the Lord had told him. But because he was too afraid of his household and of the townspeople to do it during the day, he did it at night. Remember last week, we said even feeble faith is faith. God says to Gideon, I want you to do this. You've had an angel appear to you, and you're like, okay, but at night. Let me do this. Like, don't want to ruffle too many feathers. You know what I mean? And I don't know what he was thinking. You know, God hasn't told you, like, Go take a flower and leave it on the altar, and then, like, no one's going to know. God said to him, take these two bulls, slaughter them, going to make a mess, break down the altar, cut down the wood, use the wood from that pole to burn the bull on there. I'm like, if I was Gideon, I'd be like, there is no way that this is going to happen without anybody knowing. But here he goes at night to do this. It's complicated when we think about what altars were in those days. Complicated because the Israelites didn't necessarily replace their worship of Yahweh with the worship of Baal or Asherah. What they did was they created this kind of parallel worship where they wanted to be accepted by the people around them. And so often the idea of idol worship wasn't an exact replacement of Yahweh. It was a sense of assimilating with the cultures that were around them so that they would be more accepted. Does this sound familiar? anybody? And so even from the time of Egypt, where Moses went up the mountain and was going to come down with the commands of God, and then Aaron said, I don't know what happened. This gold calf just kind of popped out. I had nothing to do with it, right? Um, And the gold calf, and they worshiped the gold calf, and what did they say? They didn't say, this is a new God. They said, this is the God who brought us out of Egypt. And so there was this complicated kind of relationship with idol worship and sacrificing with the the Israelite nation. It's very, very similar to the relationship that we have with gods and idols in our world. Because none of us in the context of this room would say that we are idol worshippers. But maybe we have more altars than we realize. 
you look at that and you say, hang on a second, this was Gideon's dad who had built the altar. It was Gideon's dad who had put this up. This was his altar. This was a family altar. I think the challenge for us is, as parents, we can teach our children, because Gideon knew, because he said to the angel, what happened? Where is the God that brought us out of Egypt? So he had been taught that Yahweh had rescued the Israelite nation out of Egypt. And he'd been taught this probably by his family, but he also was in the presence of family altars. And so we can teach salvation and hope and freedom and purpose only comes through Jesus, but we can also, as parents, set up altars of functional atheism in our home where we begin to worship things like career or finances or education or societal pressure. And we don't necessarily haven't replaced them, but we've set up these family altars. Now, this morning isn't about father and mother wounds. Uh, this isn't about the pain that bad parenting may have caused you. This is about thinking about whether there are family altars in your life that have shaped the way in which you relate to and worship God. This is not about blaming, and this is not about blaming your parents for any area of lack or for any area of sin, but it's about having the opportunity to recognize and answer, are there areas and altars family altars that God is calling me to tear down. For parents, we need to ask ourselves, does what we say and teach line up with what we build and sacrifice for? Does what we say and teach line up with what we build and sacrifice for? And for children, I want to say this, give your parents the same grace that you would want to receive when you are a parent. I remember someone saying to me, I was about 25 years old before I realized that my mother wasn't a complete idiot. <laughs> and I'm like, well, I got, I got four years to go. You know? <laughs> Keona's 21, you know? And it's not her mother being an idiot, it's probably me. So, so we look at that and, and we see this idea of tearing down these altars. So what is an altar? An altar is a place where an idol is worshipped. Now, we know what an altar is just in the context of actual physical idols. So uh, we were on a missions trip, and we went to Myanmar, and it has one of the biggest Buddhist temples in the world, in Yangon, and, um, and the rest of our crew had kind of been there, done that, so Betsy and I decided we were going to go and visit this temple. These are not our photos, but this is the temple from the outside. I want to point out a couple things to you. These things on the front here, are actually family altars. They are literally family altars. And each family purchases the right to put whatever they want to put in that altar. And as you visit, as you go around, there's this huge kind of area. You'll see families that are, are sitting there and worshiping at their family altar. Um, so even now today, this idea of a family altar is, is a prevalent thing in the natural. You know? So here, here's where you would do that. You can go to the next picture. Oh yeah, let's, Betsy looking for something on the ground. <laughs> you know what she's looking for? I'll show you what she's looking for. She's looking for that. Okay, we had to take our shoes off. Those things were crawling all over the place. Um, and so she, she definitely missed a lot of the grandeur of the temple <laughs> while she was walking around like this. Okay. 
All that to say this, when we talk about idols and altars, we feel quite disconnected from that idea. We feel disconnected from that idea because none of us here are going to go home and light incense in a family altar that we've created, call the family, and, and do that. Our altars are more sophisticated. Our altars are unseen. Uh, they're, not, they're not visited in the sense that we actually get up and go somewhere. But they are altars that we sacrifice at, and they are altars that we protect. Keller says, an idol is anything that is more important to you than God, anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God, anything you seek to, gi- sorry, anything you seek to give you what only God can give, anything that is so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. I would add to that that it is anything that we seek that we feel is going to do all of those things. So it's something that we have that we feel like if I lose this, or it's something that we seek that would make our, heart, that our life hardly worth living. Now, I mean, these can be good things. These can be our, our children, our marriage. Yeah, these are not necessarily negative things. Some of these things are obvious. Money, sex, power. Some of our idols are less obvious. Social media being part of the in-crowd. Fantasy, tolerance, therapy, busyness, perfect doctrine, religious experience. All of these things are not bad things. But all of these things, if we believe that we seek them out and they will give us what only God can give us, they become idols. The problem with tearing down idols and tearing down altars is that it's a really messy business. It's messy because it exposes the idolatry in other people. In Judges 6, verses 30, it's the morning, and the townspeople said to Joash, bring out your son for execution because he tore down the altar to Baal and cut down the Asherah pole that was beside it. These are Israelites. These are the people of God. These are the people that know that the first commandment is, you shall have no other gods beside me. And they've come to him and they've said, bring your son out so that we can kill him because he cut down this um, pole and this altar. Now, I want you to understand the complexity of this because it's Joash's family altar. He built it. Okay, the angel said, go and tear down your dad's family altar. So you're wondering, how is Joash going to respond? How is he going to respond here? He's going to be like, that's right. That ungrateful little snot tore down my altar. Let's go get him. It's interesting how he responds here. Joash replied to all who were lined up against him, will you make Baal's complaint for him? Will you come to his rescue? Anyone who argues for him will be killed by the morning. That's a little intense. If he is a god, let him argue for himself, because it was his altar that was torn down. So on that day, Gideon became known as Zerubbabel, meaning let Baal argue with him, because he tore down his altar. On that day, two important things happened. On that day, Joash recognized what he had done, even though he never said that he was wrong. 
How many of you are super dissatisfied with that? How many of you, even as older, even as people that have your own children now, all you want to hear is your parents say, I was wrong. I shouldn't have done that. He never says that. Now I know that verbal repentance, and as a parent I try and practice this, that verbal repentance is a command, it's something that we are called to do. But I think that there's a lot of us bound to our family altars because our behavior has caused our parents to look at our way of life and to make adjustments in their lives, but they never said that they were wrong. And how many of us look at that believing that they still want to worship Baal or they still want to worship that altar? Does that make sense what I'm trying to say? I feel like the connection's a little bit tenuous. Verbal confession is always what we should strive for. But when we fail to see that a person has changed because of their actions, then we fail to give them the same grace that we would want to receive because our actions have changed. So what does Gideon do? What does God command him to do? You cannot just tear down an altar. You have to replace it. He says, you've got to tear this altar down, and then you've got, to, you've got to build a new altar. And just like our bodies um, need water to survive, our human souls are thirsty souls. And what we think oftentimes is this idea of like, okay, what God has called us to is abstinence. We are not going to desire anything. And you cannot starve your soul. You have to feed your soul what God intended for your soul to get, which is the pure water that God intended for your soul. There's a wonderful book by Steve Hopp called Sipping Salt Water, How to Find Lasting Satisfaction in a World of Thirst. It's a book about idolatry. When, they, when he was asked, why did you write this book? He said, I, I wanted a different kind of metaphor for idolatry. And so he wrote this book about how idolatry in our lives is like sipping salt water. And so he said that idolatry happens in three simple steps. We listen to the lie, we sip the water, we suffer, and then we start again. Does this sound like judges to you? Does this sound like a, a cycle to you? Once we have drunk the salt water, we are more thirsty. We are more thirsty, so this cycle begins again. This cycle started... In the garden. The cycle started when they believed the lie, when Adam and Eve believed the lie of the serpent who said, you will surely not die. And so, they believed the lie, they sipped the water. Was it the fruit that caused them to create an altar? It wasn't the fruit. It was this idea that I know better than God, and whatever God has created for me to enjoy in the rest of the garden is not going to satisfy me. This thing will satisfy me. It's something that we battle the whole time. Salt water looks and feels like it can quench our thirst. Now, the problem is we have these two opposite extremes. The one is we drink salt water, thinking it'll kind of... Uh, ease our thirst. The other one is to despise salt water and to say that salt water is wrong and dirty and you shouldn't go near it. 
What we need to do is understand that salt water has its purpose. Surfing, diving, fishing, all the cool stuff. Just don't drink it, that's all. You know. I remember when I, I took John Mark and uh, we went um, uh, free diving and I, I said to him, hey John Mark, just what you gotta do is, you guys know John Mark is 6'7", right? Like he could stand in the ocean and just wave and we would see him, you know? And so he, f he fitted into my wetsuit that came to about here and, you know, it was, the whole thing was funny. But what happened was I said to him, you've got to relax. When you're in, when you're in the salt water, you've, you've got to relax because if you tense up, what will happen is the wave will just push you onto the rock. So we're, we're swimming around. I look around. I can't see him anywhere. And all of a sudden, I see him and he's on his hands and knees on top of this rock with a very very confused look on his face, like, how did I end up here? Um, and the challenge of all of that was I was saying to him, what salt water does is it floats you up over that obstacle, don't fight it. I don't know why I told you that story, probably because of John Mark, but anyway. Uh, so, I know, I know. Hey, look, you had singing announcements, you can have a story that went nowhere, you know? I know. Challenges and corrections. I don't know about singing announcements. I don't know about that story either, you know, so. <laughs> we are not called to despise the sea. We are called to use it for what it was intended for. Idolatry, when abused, is actually taking the gift that God gave us in order to add to the flourishing of our lives and making it ultimate. Whether it's sex, money, family, or work, none of these are evil. They were designed for our flourishing. But when we build altars to them, is when we get in trouble. We are, band, you can come up. We are consistently warned by Jesus, by God, in the opposite way. We are consistently warned that this will not quench our thirst. In Jeremiah 2, the prophet is trying to warn the people of God. And God is speaking through the prophet, and he says, My people have committed two crimes. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and they have dug wells, broken wells, that don't hold water. In Isaiah 55, there is a call from God through the prophet who says, All who are thirsty, come to the water. Whoever has no money, come and buy food and eat without money at no cost. And then Jesus, in John 7, quotes... Isaiah, and on the last day and most important day of the festival, Jesus stood up and shouted, all who are thirsty should come to me. All who believe in me should drink. As the scripture said concerning me, rivers of living water will flow out from within him. You know, in the, in the creating of our altars, in lacking the desire to actually break down those altars, there's really two key questions that every human being is asking. They're asking, am I loved and do I matter? Am I loved and do I matter? Our thirst and our hunger and our building of altars is all focused around that. And Jesus has answered those two questions. Are you loved and do you matter? Yes, you are loved. And he answered it by saying, come to me, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. But he also answered it on the cross when he said, it is finished. No more striving, no more digging, no more thirsting. 
No more hoarding. It is finished in him because of what he did on the cross. Jesus showed his deep love for us. Am I loved? Yes, you are loved because I chose to die on that cross to show you how much I love you. Do I matter? Yes, you matter. Because when I ascended to sit at the right hand of the Father, I sent the Spirit of God to live in you, to be able to live the kind of life that I've called you to live and to be able to live on mission. You have been given a kingdom mission, which is the restoring of all things to Jesus through the church. Yes, you matter. Is there meaning in your life? What could be more meaningful than living for an eternal kingdom? Maybe this morning you're tired, you're hiding, you're surviving in this dark and restrictive place, and you just need to be reminded who you are. You need to be reminded who God is. Maybe this morning there is an invitation for you to join God in the tearing down of some family altars. To say, God, because you say you're with me, I'm going to go and tear that down and replace it with an altar that brings glory to you. Well, maybe this morning you're asking that question, God, I don't know that you can satisfy. I don't know. I want to believe that. People tell me to believe it. I'm not sure that I believe that. Remember we said last week, and I said this week, feeble faith is still faith. If you've got to get up in the middle of the night and go and do what God has asked you to do, then do that, because feeble faith still pleases God. Let's pray. Father, I lift up my brothers and sisters, those that are tired, hiding, surviving, wondering, why is this happening to me? Where is God in all of this? Father, I want to pray for just a fresh reminder that you are the God that rescued us from slavery. You are the God that walks alongside us in the valley of the shadow of death. I want to pray for those men and women that are here that are recognizing family altars, places that they visit, sacrifice and protect, places that they really hope are going to give them what they desire. God, I want to pray that you would give them the strength to tear those down and build new altars to you. And God, I really do pray through your spirit that people would be able to taste the pure water of the living word of God, that it would satisfy our souls. Jesus, won't you minister to us? Um, Michaela shared something with me um, before the gathering started, and I feel like it's appropriate for her to share now, and then I'll, I'll give us some direction into communion. Um, yeah, I was just sharing with Sean that um, um, the some of the gospel um, affirmations um, through this module that we've been reading over the last week um, one of them in particular had struck me and kind of stood out to me, and that's that we um, belong to God um, because we were bought um, with um, a, a, with a price, and 
that price being the blood that he, sh he shed for us. And um, that's really costly. Um, and we know something's worth um, by how much we're willing to, to pay for it. And so because God um, paid that price, it speaks about our worth, um, that he values us and sees us as precious. Um, I don't know if um, there's anyone here this morning that doesn't know Christ, but I just felt like there's this opportunity. Um, you're immensely valuable to God. Uh, just like what Michaela just shared, uh, he paid an ultimate price because you're of ultimate value to him. And that's just the start. <laughs> uh, the reality is that we have been forgiven of our sin in Christ so that we can move on and live. And so much of what Nick was talking about today, about living in a way that tears down idols and repositions our hearts towards God is about how we live. It's about how we grow. It's about how we engage. Um, so we're gonna um, we're gonna respond to communion. Uh, there's a table in the back, two tables here to my left, um, and I'm wondering if there's a couple of people that uh, that are here uh, this morning. Maybe maybe God's kind of nudged you a little bit uh, as Nick was talking about different things that are in your life that maybe you just have become a little too sticky, a little too grippy on on you to pull your attention, your affection away. And maybe the Lord's giving you a nudge to let go and to ask him to help you to let go of whatever that is, to begin to kind of tear down whatever whatever that, that idol, that altar ultimately is. Um, that's something that we can ask him to help us to do that and to release and surrender that. Um, but then there's others that maybe you're, you're, you're just not totally convinced of what Michaela just mentioned, or maybe you've never met Christ before, uh, and this whole idea of a God who actually really loves you uh, is completely new to you. If that's you, I would love to pray for you and to meet you. Um, but if that's also you and you do know Jesus, but you're just struggling, I wanna, I wanna encourage you as we go to the table to take the elements and I'm going to give us a chance to pause before we take it. We're going to take it all together. We're going to go get the elements, come back, and I'll lead us through communion. But I want to give us a, a moment to pause holding it together and to consider the things that God has saying to us, each of us individually this morning. So the band's going to continue to play. Go ahead and grab a, a bread and a cup and come back. We, uh, we hold the elements in our hands. Um, and I just want to give us a second to pause together all of us together. Um, Paul tells us that we should allow everyone to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink of the cup. And it's just a moment to pause and to invite the living God, a living person that is here to speak to you.
I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, Father, I thank you for the life of Jesus Christ. I thank you for this bread that was broken for us. This is your body. We do this in remembrance of you. same way you took the cup as we take it now with gratitude we remember that this cup is the new covenant of your blood we do this in remembrance of you father we thank you that you are alive and with us we thank you that you have made a way for us to come to be with you. You have dealt with our sin when we accept what Jesus has done for us. And then you have life for us to get on living. And so, Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters and for myself, for all of us here, that we would walk forward with you, responding to you, and get on living. Look, what are the things you have for us? Continue to grow us. Help us to let go of these idols and these altars and these pressures and these things that can so easily creep up on us that we don't even recognize that they're there. Help us, Lord. We need your help. We thank you that we have it and that you never shame anyone who asks for help. You always, always help. You're always faithful. You are always true. And the church said, amen, amen. We're going to draw to a close. The band's going to continue to play, but there's going to be people to my left, to your right. Listen, if there's uh, something that you need to let go of, an altar that needs to kind of get torn down, God's been nudging you, please bring that. Uh, we, are all, we all have those things time to time to time. If you're someone that has struggled with knowing your value, please come, come get prayer. Allow the living God to meet you. And if you have never met Jesus, you don't know what I'm talking about. It's, all this seems really weird. I would love to talk to you. I would love to talk to you. It was weird to me at one point too. So for the rest of us, there's going to be coffee and donuts out the back. Um, and we'd love to, I'd love to hang out with you. Go out and be the church. Thank you for listening to the Mercy Commons podcast. If you enjoyed today's content, please rate us and hit subscribe. And if you'd like to learn more about us, visit our website at mercycommons.church.